0: It was dubbed the fight of the century. In one corner, Muhammad Ali, fresh off a 1967 suspension from boxing for refusing to fight in the Vietnam War.
1: In the other was Joe Frazier, an undefeated pro-war advocate who took the title in Ali's absence.
0: Madison Square Garden, heavyweight title on the line. Pro-government versus anti-establishment. This was much more than just a boxing match.
1: On March 8, 1971, anyone who was anyone was sure to be in attendance. But the two men with the best seat in the buildings weren't household names. When they sat down and looked over at each other, they smiled and gave a friendly salute. They worked in the same business, after all.
0: One was Frank Matthews, a successful heroin and narcotics trafficker with operations all over the East Coast.
1: The other was Frank Lucas, well-known in the underworld for his potent supply of heroin, but relatively anonymous to the wider public. Tonight, though, Lucas would change that because he sported the most noticeable outfit in the arena, a custom-made chinchilla fur coat with a $100,000 price tag and a matching $20,000 hat.
0: The two Franks teased and taunted each other. One's coat was nicer. The other pulled up in a nicer vehicle. Then their taunts turned to the fight. 100. No, 200. Make it $500,000. Done. The drug lords bet $500,000 on a boxing match without batting an eye, like they were trading baseball cards in their mom's basement.
1: Little did they know that the three men sitting in between them were drug enforcement agency officers. Three DEA agents, who just watched two of the most successful heroin dealers on the East Coast, ostentatiously put half a million dollars on the line.
0: I'm Howell Hargett.
1: And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins from the ParCast Network. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld
0: and why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them.
1: This is our second episode on Frank Lucas, one of the most successful heroin dealers of all time.
0: You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory.
1: If you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Last week, we looked at Frank Lucas's rise through the Harlem streets. From small-time dealing to robbery to working for the notorious Harlem godfather, Lucas continually found ways to survive.
1: But when his boss, Bumpy Johnson, died in 1968, the criminal underground of Harlem was wide open for the taking, and Lucas was ready to capitalize.
0: Frank Lucas had no plan, but to follow the yellow brick road.
1: In the late 1960s, after spending an entire day thinking in his air-conditioned hotel room, the Bangkok, Thailand afternoon felt particularly hot and bright.
0: He told himself he was not going home without a new connection. Drug addiction was an international language. All he had to do was find where the strung out soldiers were and follow the trail of breadcrumbs to the supplier.
1: He got in a taxi and said the same thing he did when he first got to New York City at 14 years old, quote, take me to where the black people are, end quote.
0: The taxi driver took him to a bar with some ex-army men. When he saw some of them nodding off in a delirious state and others running around at 100 miles a minute, he knew he had found the right place.
1: Lucas quietly spread the word around the bar Asking soldiers if they knew of a hookup, asking how pure the stuff was.
0: The answer to the latter question was always the same, better than anything you could dream of getting in New York City.
1: Then one day, as Lucas was leaving his hotel, ready to make his daily scouting trip to the bar, he was stopped by a sharply dressed Chinese Thai man he simply called 007.
0: From outside sources, we now know this man to be named Luce Rubawat.
1: 007 drove Lucas in his Rolls Royce to a place in the hills high above Bangkok, where he turned to Lucas and simply asked, What do you need, Mr. Lucas?
0: By the time the two men finished negotiating, Lucas had purchased 225 kilograms of heroin at $4,200 per kilogram. The total ran him $945,000.
1: 007 arranged for the transport of the drugs back to the United States, where the shipment would officially become Lucas's responsibility. And just like that, a brand new international heroin smuggling operation was born.
0: The decision to fly to Thailand stemmed from several things that happened in Frank Lucas's life in the late 1960s.
1: First, Lucas saw a news report that highlighted the heroin industry in Southeast Asia. More specifically, an area on the border of Laos, Burma, and Thailand known as the Golden Triangle, named for its opium poppy production. Many United States soldiers serving in Vietnam were getting hooked on heroin as a consequence of the stress of war and proximity to the region. The drug abuse was becoming an increasingly large problem for the U.S. armed forces. In 1971, the Department of Defense released a report that about 28% of armed forces used harder drugs, like cocaine and heroin, Due to negative media attention against the Army's marijuana usage in the late 1960s, many soldiers switched to heroin, as it was odorless and difficult to detect. According to a Pentagon study, over 20% of soldiers were regular heroin users by 1973.
0: But to a man like Frank Lucas, a problem like this was only an opportunity. He saw a place where a product was not being used to its full potential.
1: In July of 1968, when the Harlem godfather Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson died of a heart attack, it opened a previously shut door.
0: Johnson had vetoed the idea of the Southeast Asian heroin scheme, and as long as he was still around, Lucas would never think of betraying his word. So when he died, Lucas was ready to carve a place of his own in the Harlem underworld.
1: After the funeral services, Frank Lucas collected about $3 million from Bumpy Johnson's various businesses and then bought a ticket to Bangkok.
0: With the help of Luce Rubawat and an ex-soldier named Ike Atkinson, Lucas set up a pipeline of heroin that flew into North Carolina and then was shuttled up to New Jersey and New York City.
1: This required them to be incredibly creative in how they hid the drugs on United States-bound planes. According to Frank, they went so far as to smuggle the drugs in false-bottomed coffins of dead soldiers flying home from the Vietnam War. Once again, we are hit with that ominous and frustratingly vague phrase, according to Frank. As we saw last episode, Lucas's personal accounts of his life often seem exaggerated, or outright made up. We found that this is, in part, because the story of Frank Lucas has been told and retold across many different mediums, severely distorting the truth.
0: There is a condition known as false memory syndrome, in which a person's memories are influenced by outsiders, or by themselves and their own subconscious, in such a way that the memory itself becomes inauthentic. This misinformation is exacerbated by both emotional states within the memory and by subliminal suggestion after the fact.
1: Lucas's time as a heroin supplier was cultivated in an immensely polarizing world. Since then, his story has been both sensationalized by movies like American Gangster and attacked by people like Mamie Johnson Bumpy Johnson's widow.
0: It is very possible that the telling and retelling of Frank Lucas's story has not only corrupted the public's vision of the man, but the man's own understanding of himself, to a point where he genuinely believes the intimate tell-all account he gives in his book.
1: A belief that is vitally important. Because whether or not the stories Lucas relays are reliable, he believes them to be true. This belief is important, because as we are telling a story about the man, we are forced to consider this side of him.
0: However, when it comes to the story about shipping heroin in coffins, we must dig a little deeper.
1: Using the coffins as a method of transport has become one of the most infamous details about Frank Lucas' operations. Enough so that it earned its own name, the Cadaver Connection.
0: But it is also one of the most hotly contested pieces of Lucas's story, as many have questioned its veracity. When pressed on the truth of the matter in a 2000 interview with Mark Jacobson, Lucas claimed, We did it all right, ha ha ha. Who the hell is going to look in a dead soldier's coffin, ha ha ha?
1: His statement, while seemingly cold and unsettlingly revealing, also is most likely a boldface lie.
0: Ike Atkinson, the ex-soldier and co-conspirator in the Bangkok drug smuggling circuit, has vehemently denied this claim. Atkinson, who, like Lucas, was from North Carolina, contends that they shipped the heroin over in customized teak furniture.
1: There is absolutely no evidence to support the coffin theory, and we assume this to just be a rumor that was blown out of proportion over time.
0: But Atkinson's accusations against Lucas do not stop there. He claims that Lucas was much more passive in his involvement with the Bangkok connection and did not travel there until 1974.
1: There is evidence for both Atkinson and Lucas telling the truth. So we're left with guesswork.
0: It seems most likely that while Lucas established his connection to Southeast Asia sometime in the late 1960s, Atkinson was the primary brains behind handling the logistics and transport.
1: What is most important is that both men were fundamental in setting up a pipeline that would bring thousands of pounds of heroin into the United States.
0: The only thing left for Lucas to do was handle the drugs when they got stateside.
1: When he pulled up to gate number 24 in McGuire Air Force Base, Lucas wasn't quite sure what to expect.
0: Two men in uniform approached the large, secure gate and opened it. They looked at Lucas and signaled his U-Haul through.
1: The men didn't say a word. They threw duffel bag after duffel bag into Frank Lucas's U-Haul until 225 kilograms of heroin were fully loaded.
0: The whole thing was over in less than a minute. Lucas and his crew were headed off the Air Force base on their way to becoming incredibly rich. Thus, Frank Lucas was able to establish a direct connection and became one of the first New York City heroin suppliers to work around the mafia.
1: He set up warehouses full of naked women to cut the heroin. This was so they would not steal the product. He purchased larger and larger quantities from Thailand and began to put a stranglehold on the heroin market in Harlem.
0: The product coming in from Bangkok was higher quality than what the Mafia was dealing, so the reputation around Lucas's heroin began to grow, and then it got a name.
1: Lucas says he is not sure where the name Blue Magic came from, but it was catchy, simple, rolled off the tongue, and suggested an exceptional, unique experience.
0: When the name Blue Magic started to be whispered by addicts and dealers, it worked wonders for his business.
1: His drug empire erupted. Lucas had the best heroin on the streets of New York City, and the slumped-over bodies on 116th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue were testament to it. Lucas was raking in more money than he knew what to do with.
0: However, there were still many complications in working in the underworld.
1: Competing drug dealers, law enforcement, offshore banks, business fronts. All of these were tedious walls that stood in the way of Frank Lucas's success. But all of them paled in comparison to the biggest threat a drug dealer could have, the corrupt police officer.
0: We'll hear more about that corruption shortly.
1: Now back to the story.
0: By the start of the 1970s, Frank Lucas's operations were running smoothly. However, for some reason, Lucas could never quite get rid of his attraction to the street side of the drug game.
1: Every day, he drove down to 116th Street between 7th and 8th Avenues in a beat-up Chevrolet he called Nellie Bell and watched his product sell.
0: One day he arrived and saw a teenage boy strung out on the corner furiously masturbating.
1: Lucas shivered in disgust, but he was here for business. If you couldn't harden yourself to the darker sides of this life, you better find yourself a different line of work.
0: When 4 p.m. hit, the dealers moved to their spots.
1: The addicts were lining up for Lucas's dealers, the ones that carried blue magic, like they were waiting for tickets to a sold-out show. The dealers that carried the other stuff, the off-brand, were having to practically beg to make sales.
0: This was good. His product still reigns supreme.
1: The streets could not get enough of blue magic. Lucas would watch his dealers sell out every single day.
0: And even though Lucas was several layers removed from street dealing, he still was there watching. Disguised in his beat up Chevy day after day,
1: This type of street-level observation made Frank Lucas fairly unique. He had an intimate understanding of both the high-level transport and low-level dealing.
0: This chameleon act not only set him apart, but it allowed him to be in control of all phases of his business.
1: But it also brought Lucas to a first-hand confrontation with the effects of his heroin operation.
0: The moment that hit Lucas the hardest, or so he claims, was when he went to visit his firstborn son, nicknamed Yogi.
1: When Lucas stepped out of his car and approached Yogi's building, he at first didn't think much of the two addicts sitting on the ground, nodding in and out of reality.
0: Then he did a double-take. There was something about those boys. Something about those faces.
1: Lucas had never thought twice about addicts in his life. As far as he was concerned, the decision was their own. Nothing he could do about it.
0: Then one of the teenagers looked up at Lucas. His eyes drooped, his expression desperate.
1: A few dollars, he asked. Please, Mr. Lucas, just a few dollars.
0: Then Lucas knew. These boys were from the neighborhood. They even were friends with Yogi's older brothers.
1: Seeing the drug in such close proximity to his son rattled Lucas, or so he claims. It's hard to know whether or not Lucas felt any sort of remorse at the time, or if he was using this narrative to create both public and personal sympathy.
0: Nevertheless, this incident caused Lucas to take a trip to Puerto Rico, where he did something he called backtracking. Lucas would lock himself in a room, make sure all his meals and necessities were taken care of, and then go over everything that happened recently in his life. Sometimes for a week. Sometimes for a month.
1: This type of thinking was incredibly important to Lucas. As we've come to understand him, Lucas was impulsive and fiery, ready to leap into the most risky situations without so much as a second thought. To counterbalance this blind instinct, he needed desperately to block out time for reflection.
0: On this particular trip in the early 1970s, he was contemplating his conscience and the wild success of his Southeast Asian connection. Of the former, Lucas said, Was I really going to continue in the drug game? Did I feel guilty about it? Would I get over it? The answer to all those questions was yes. With that settled, I moved on to thinking about my crew.
1: Even when he is trying to position himself as remorseful, it's easy to see the casualness with which Frank Lucas brushes off his supposed guilt. Despite seeing teenagers, mothers, and children lose their livelihoods to his product, all it took was three simple questions for Lucas to find justification for continuing.
0: There was another important outcome to this trip to Puerto Rico. After a month of planning, Lucas returned on a flight to New York. On that flight, he met his future wife, a young woman in her mid-twenties named Julie Ferrate.
1: But the two would take some time before they officially got together. First and foremost, after shedding his guilt in Puerto Rico, Lucas was focused on expansion.
0: His business was seeing incredible success. He started to supply dealers up and down the East Coast, and even had a well-known drug lord from Los Angeles approach him about his product.
1: Because of the cheap prices he paid by trafficking directly through Southeast Asia, he could offer top-quality heroin at much cheaper wholesale costs than the mafia.
0: The money was pouring in. He kept a large chunk of it in Cayman Island banks, but knew that his lavish lifestyle and abundant funds could very easily draw suspicious eyes from authority.
1: His mentor, Bumpy Johnson, used an extermination business as an excuse for his influx of cash. So Lucas, too, sought out something legitimate.
0: He tried his hand at everything. He bought a gas station, a grocery store, even a dry cleaning service where he found himself behind the counter one day when a member of his staff called in sick.
1: A rich white lady burst through the door, face red, pulsing with anger.
0: She slammed a handful of shirts on the counter.
1: Frank was incredulous. He looked down at her and asked what he could do for her.
0: The lady was furious that she just picked up her shirts and a stain was still there.
1: Lucas reluctantly agreed to clean them again, but the lady wasn't finished. She had a ticket for her husband's shirts and she must, absolutely must have them today.
0: Lucas told her he didn't have time for that and that she could get her shirts later. At Lucas's brazen dismissal, the woman only got more angry.
1: She shouted for Lucas to go get the shirts this instant.
0: Lucas, as we might guess, didn't take too well to someone giving him orders. He grabbed his keys, cussed out the wide-eyed lady, and stormed out of that dry cleaning shop never to return.
1: He claims he never knew what happened to the business, whether it continued to operate or completely shut down. Lucas was like that, leaving things behind, never thinking about them again. It's probably why he was able to work with heroin. He could see the lives he destroyed firsthand, but the second he turned his back, it was like they did not exist.
0: His last business endeavor was much more suited to his taste. Lucas invested in a club in Midtown called The Turntable, with his friend and fellow drug dealer, Zach Robinson.
1: The Turntable is where Lucas claims he had his most boisterous celebrity interactions. He became very close friends with legendary boxer Joe Lewis, Diana Ross would dance like James Brown, Lonnie Youngblood, The Temptations, and King Curtis would perform all sorts of celebrities would stop by the turntable on their way through town,
0: including Los Angeles Lakers star center Wilt Chamberlain. Lucas saw the monster of a man from across the room and eyed him carefully. He was not interested in the legendary star, but the beautiful short young woman he was talking to.
1: He recognized her immediately as the woman he met on the plane returning from Puerto Rico.
0: When Frank approached, Wilt tightened up. This was his territory, he warned Frank. Best to stay away.
1: But the threat was in jest. The two made a friendly wager, mind you, right in front of the young lady, about who would succeed in winning her over.
0: Of course, ultimately, Frank Lucas was victorious and left with Julie Ferrate. Within a year, the two were married in the early 1970s.
1: This story, like so many others of Lucas's, is clearly an exaggeration, but it highlights something important. This was a major moment in Lucas's life, and like all major moments, it could not be just another mundane happenstance. Julie Ferrate was the most important woman Frank would ever be involved with, and as the most important woman, in his mind, he would never just meet her she would also have to be coveted by one of the most famous people of that generation.
0: Of course, we must remember that Lucas was a man of power, wealth, and influence. It seems only natural he had access to some of the higher echelons of society.
1: But on the other hand, in the words of Judge Sterling Johnson, Frank was illiterate, he was vicious and violent. So there is a tedious balance in his exaggerations. We must always remember that Lucas is a man impossible to trust. But we, too, must keep in mind that he had an incredible amount of power, manipulation, and charm.
0: Frank moved to a nice house in Teaneck, New Jersey, when his wife Julie was pregnant with their first child. He bought a yacht, owned several properties across America, and got offered a role to star in a movie called The Rip Off. The director's vision was to have real gangsters play the gangsters in the movie.
1: One day, he invited his mother and father to look at a freshly bought colonial house in Teaneck, New Jersey. His mother asked him in shock, Frank, is that your house? To which Frank replied, no mama, this is your house.
0: Though he had a home in New Jersey, he kept a luxury condo in the heart of New York City at 3333 Henry Hudson Parkway. At least that is, until he came across a resident he didn't take too kindly to.
1: Frank, Frank Lucas. When he first heard his name called, Lucas couldn't quite place the voice. And when he looked over and saw who it was, he nearly started his Rolls Royce and took off on the spot.
0: Lucas did not like Nikki Barnes, another well-known Harlem heroin dealer. He was too loud, too fast, too talkative, and, as of this moment, living in too close of proximity.
1: When Barnes told Lucas, who did not even get out of the car, that they shared the same building, Lucas had to hold himself back from banging his head on the steering wheel.
0: Then Barnes brought up the inevitable, the council. The council was Barnes' vision of having a collective of Harlem kingpins in the vein of the Italian mafia mob bosses. We can make more money, Frank, the man preached. All we gotta do is split up the city.
1: Lucas groaned at the mention of the council. He would never hear the end of it and he would never join. He was Frank Lucas. He was the top dog, the alpha of Harlem. He didn't need the council or help, and certainly not Nikki Barnes.
0: Lucas said as much to Barnes in much fewer words, left the building on Henry Hudson Parkway, and just like the dry cleaner and everything else he did not like, never returned.
1: But Lucas's assured arrogance against Barnes was excessive. Barnes was a major player in the drug dealing game. It is estimated he was worth nearly $50 million himself, and many believe he was a much bigger fish in the Harlem scene than Frank Lucas.
0: This was perhaps due to his penchant for reckless car chases and shootouts, or his infamous portrait on the cover of the New York Times Magazine in 1977, declaring him Mr. Untouchable. It is not so important whether Frank or Nicky was bigger and more powerful But what is important is that they operated in a world where they both could exist. And they weren't the only ones. There were several other dealers making big money in Harlem in the 1970s.
1: Frank Matthews, the other Frank from our teaser and one of the most intriguing drug kingpins of this era, got shipments of cocaine and heroin from South America through the Cuban mafia.
0: Zach Robinson, William Goldfinger Terrell, Robert Stepney, and Gerald Hartley were all powerful independent operators out of Harlem, New York City, and New Jersey. These men were the unnamed succession to Bumpy Johnson, powerful black gangsters who began to tediously push against the unrelenting wall that was the Italian crime family.
1: For years, the Italian mafia had a stranglehold on all illicit activities in New York City. However, as the early 70s started to see indictments against these once untouchable gangsters, the Italian families began to weaken, leaving what some would consider a vacancy. Enough so that Dr. Francis A.J. Ianni, an expert on organized crime in the 70s, published a book titled Black Mafia, Ethnic Succession in Organized Crime.
0: The book argues that just as the Italian crime syndicate followed the Jewish and Irish crime lords before them, the upcoming black gangsters were in a prime position to overtake and dominate the underworld.
1: And he was certainly justified for thinking so. Nikki Barnes had close ties to the mafia family and ran a deep-seated organization. Matthews and Lucas were both in the thick of setting up operations across the eastern seaboard. It seemed that power in the underworld was shifting significantly.
0: But even though he had similarities to Harlem's other kingpins, Lucas was one of the most independent.
1: It is what made him successful and unpredictable. A wild card that pursued his instinct with a violent fervor.
0: This is perhaps the most interesting thing about Lucas. He is not your typical kingpin who amassed power and formed a pseudo-government of lieutenants and decision-makers, but rather somebody who much preferred to keep his operations personal.
1: That individuality catapulted Frank Lucas into Harlem infamy. He was the lone wolf of the heroin world, the man who didn't give a damn about anything, the man who just wanted to get richer and richer and richer, rich enough so he could afford a jet plane.
0: Unfortunately for Lucas, this relentless quest for wealth and independence would soon bring over two dozen specially trained agents knocking at his door.
1: We'll find out how this happened in a moment. Now back to the story.
0: By the early 1970s, Frank Lucas had become one of the top kingpins of Harlem his trafficking pipeline from Southeast Asia assured that he had the best product in the city, a product he monitored from its shipment in large packages to its selling point in a little bag on the street.
1: Unfortunately, when you live such a life steeped in the evils of the underground, corruption comes to find you from all sides. In the 1970s, corruption was a glaring reality for the New York City Police Department.
0: On December 14, 1971, in a jaw-dropping testimony in front of the NAP Commission, Detective Frank Serpico highlighted how he had been dealing with police corruption since he joined the force five years earlier. He particularly stated how honest officers were lambasted, ostracized, and intimidated by corrupt officials. Serpico said in his testimony, we must create an atmosphere in which the dishonest officer fears the honest one and not the other way around
1: the NAP commission identified two types of corrupt officers grass eaters and meat eaters
0: the grass eaters took petty bribes five dollars here if your car registration was expired ten dollars there if they caught you gambling but
1: the meat eaters were dangerous to men like frank lucas The meat eaters went after pimps and drug dealers looking for opportunities they could continually exploit.
0: It was a meat eater that Frank Lucas was about to come face to face with.
1: Late at night, the lights shined and the siren sounded, stopping Lucas as he was just a block away from his house. He could see the silhouetted outline of the building and longed to get there after a long day.
0: He would play it cool, do it by the rules. All the cops in the neighborhood knew who he was anyway. This had to be some sort of mistake.
1: But when Lucas looked out at the officer, he realized he was in a world of trouble. The man was NYPD. NYPD doesn't cross the bridge into New Jersey. NYPD has no business with what goes on in Lucas's neighborhood.
0: That is, unless that particular NYPD officer doesn't give a damn about jurisdiction. And this one only gave a damn about one thing. Getting Frank Lucas's money.
1: When Lucas asked the officer what he wanted, the man was quick to say $10,000 a month.
0: $10,000 a month and Lucas would have nothing to worry about.
1: In books and interviews over the years, Lucas gave the officer the name Babyface as a way to refer to him.
0: Babyface continued to pester Lucas who had no choice but to pay up. This corruption plagued Lucas for a long time.
1: However, Lucas's biggest trouble with the law would unexpectedly begin at a boxing match on October 26, 1970.
0: It was an important night in Atlanta, Georgia. Muhammad Ali was returning from his band from boxing.
1: Everyone was there. It was both a sporting event and a cultural milestone. Civil rights leaders like Jesse Jackson, Julian Bond, Coretta Scott King, Arthur Ashe, and Sidney Poitier made their appearance.
0: Alongside them were the men of the underworld. New York essayist George Plimpton said, I'd never seen crowds as fancy, especially the men felt hat bands and feathered capes, and the stilted shoes, the heels like polished ebony, and many smoking stuff in odd meerschaum pipes.
1: This display of wealth got under Frank Lucas's skin, especially because he arrived dressed in a modest suit. Some of the big time dealers from LA started taunting Lucas for his drab clothing, saying that they thought he was supposed to be big time or something special.
0: Lucas seethed over it, and his tender ego finally burst. He shouted at all of them in the streets that at the next fight in New York City, he had better see every last one of them there.
1: He said in his book, My name is Frank Lucas, and there is no such thing as out-talking me, out-hustling me, out-thinking me, or out-dressing me. Might be able to get away with some of that stuff today, but in 1970, no. I wasn't letting it happen under any circumstances.
0: Pretty soon, the fight of the century was scheduled for March 8, 1971, and Frank Lucas went out to buy himself the coat that would make him infamous.
1: The night of the first bout between Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali on March 8, 1971, is finally something we can corroborate about Lucas's story.
0: There are photographs of Lucas at the fight in his ostentatious wool coat and matching hat, along with several testimonies as to his front row seat. Lucas claims to this day that the coat and his flashiness that night were what put him on the DEA's radar.
1: One of the primary prosecutors against Frank Lucas, Richie Roberts, contests this, but does say that the fashion decision was a costly error for the kingpin. Quote, Law enforcement knew of him. Frank doesn't believe that, but law enforcement certainly knew of him and his people. But certainly, it brought a lot more attention onto him, that coat. You don't go around showing that kind of money when the people who are trying to arrest you are making in those days $25,000 a year, and you're showing a coat that's like five years' salaries. It gets these guys a little angry. So, it was a bad mistake. End quote
0: common opinion about lucas is that he was distinctly not one of the flashy gangsters of the time period while it was true that he did not pursue the same publicity and flair as contemporaries like Nicky barnes lucas definitely still had a certain attraction to style and luxury enough so that he took on the nickname superfly
1: he had his large yacht multiple cars A luxurious ranch complete with a prized bull that cost six figures and multiple properties around the country.
0: And a $100,000 chinchilla coat with a $20,000 matching hat might have been an extension of this, but it was an elaborate extension and it did exactly what Lucas intended it to do. It turned heads.
1: After all, it was the luxuries that kept Frank Lucas in the game as a tepid excuse for why he never left, Lucas constantly laments that he wanted just one more item.
0: A jet plane. All he needed was a jet plane, and he would be out of drug dealing for good.
1: Which appears again, like Lucas in hindsight, is constructing a reality that minimizes blame to a certain degree.
0: So Lucas persisted with the vague goal of a jet plane in the back of his head.
1: And all the while, law enforcement was zeroing in on the ostentatious man in the chinchilla coat because a mounting wave was building against the drug trade in America that Frank Lucas would be unable to avoid. In
0: 1971, President Richard Nixon famously declared that drug abuse was the United States' public enemy number one.
1: Former Nixon aide John Ehrlichman later declared that this was a tactic to disrupt what Nixon saw as the greatest threat to his influence, the hippie and black communities.
0: In particular, the Rockefeller Laws passed in 1973 targeted low-level, nonviolent users and put them in prison for exorbitant sentences.
1: Essentially, these laws put the penalty of non-violent drug use and trafficking on par with murder.
0: That means that everyone from small-time pushers to addicts were fair game for arrest and severe prosecution.
1: For black communities, this was especially damning, as black drug users and addicts did not have access to the same amount of treatment or therapy as their white counterparts. In the year 2000, 90% of the males incarcerated under the Rockefeller Laws were Black or Hispanic.
0: In addition, as proven by Frank Lucas, there was money to be made in the heroin trade, a tempting option for underserved youth who had little ability to escape their systematic oppression.
1: This made a community like Harlem easy pickings. Law enforcement agencies could now suddenly grab any level of addict or user off the street, throw them in jail for 15 years, and be praised for it on the evening
0: news. Then, in 1973, Nixon established the Drug Enforcement Agency, a single organization whose sole purpose was to enforce federal drug laws.
1: All this is to say that during the height of Frank Lucas's reign, a storm was brewing that no one could stop.
0: By 1974, the world had changed. At 44, Frank Lucas had profited on years of turmoil and the undeniable heroin addiction that ran rampant through New York City. But with Nixon's war on drugs and the heavily funded DEA, the tide was beginning to turn.
1: For Lucas specifically, two storm fronts were brewing.
0: The first was a DEA investigation into the Gambino crime family, one of the Mafia's five central crime syndicates in New York City. Under the tutelage of boss Carlos Gambino, the family had become a major player in the 1970s East Harlem heroin game.
1: But when two of their soldiers were arrested in 1974, they readily gave up the name of a competitor and major drug dealer, none other than Frank Lucas.
0: The second front came from a growing investigation of his brother's gang, known as the Country Boys.
1: At first, Lucas refused to get into business with his brothers, as he wanted to keep them out of his lifestyle. But when it became apparent that they were going to find a way to buy and sell heroin, he instructed one of his lieutenants to supply them.
0: So when the DEA sent government agents to go undercover and investigate the Country Boys in Newark, New Jersey, Lucas was in trouble, whether he knew it or not. The DEA and NYPD began taking steps to obtain a warrant for Frank Lucas's home at 933 Sheffield Road in Teaneck, New Jersey. And in January of 1975, a task force between the two agencies was assembled to raid the mob boss's home.
1: January 28, 1975, was a typical freezing winter night. But the 10 DEA agents and 10 NYPD officers had a job to do.
0: They knocked on the door with immediacy. This is the police, they shouted. Open up.
1: They heard panic from the inside, people scrambling. Then a window in the backyard opened, and a briefcase with stacks of money started to pour out the window. Julie Lucas had lost her nerve.
0: When the agents entered the house, they were greeted by a tall man in sweatpants who calmly asked to see their warrant. Then Frank Lucas waited with his two children as the agents searched the house.
1: They didn't find drugs. But what they did find was several keys to Cayman Island's safe deposit boxes, a few tickets to a United Nations event, and cash. $584,000 worth of cash, enough to arrest Lucas on conspiracy to sell heroin and his wife, Julie, for obstruction of justice.
0: Five months later, in May of 1975, several undercover DEA agents arrested Frank Lucas's brothers, known as the Country Boys.
1: They were carrying 10 pounds of heroin from Thailand.
0: Prosecutor Richie Roberts headed up the case against Lucas. Establishing that Lucas was a major player in a major international drug ring,
1: as then Special Narcotics Prosecutor Sterling Johnson pointed out, quote, "Lucas was the king. There is no evidence he was accountable to anyone else. He gave the orders. He did not take orders." End quote.
0: But Lucas fought back. He continued to run the drug operation from his holding cell making sure the shipments from Southeast Asia made their way to Harlem by way of North Carolina.
1: In one of his trials with 13 other defendants, all a part of the trafficking ring, the jury was accused of accepting $60,000 in bribes.
0: In addition, six witnesses for the prosecution had been mysteriously murdered before they could testify. Lucas allegedly even put a hit out on Richie Roberts, the main prosecutor against Lucas.
1: Convicting Frank Lucas was not going to be easy.
0: But Richie Roberts was tenacious. He used testimonies from 43 others who he had indicted in taking down Lucas's ring, including his family members and friends. He brought up witness after witness to testify about the incredibly dangerous potency of blue magic.
1: He famously declared that Frank Lucas had single-handedly, quote, killed more black people than the KKK with the sale of blue magic, end quote.
0: One woman in particular made an impact. The court was silent as Mrs. Nelson, a mother from Harlem, made her way to the stand. Frank Lucas heard her son, Tommy, whisper to his mother, trying to stop her.
1: She ignored him. She did not even look him in the eyes. Tommy was, after all, on trial for dealing heroin.
0: Tommy's little brother was dead of an overdose.
1: Mrs. Nelson took the stand and wove together a heart-wrenching story. How she watched her youngest son slowly get taken in by heroin. How she came home one day to find her son wide-eyed and dead in the bathroom, bags of blue magic lying around his body.
0: Even Frank Lucas admits that he cried.
1: The prosecution's tactics worked. Lucas was held responsible for his actions. He was given a 40-year federal conviction and a 30-year conviction by the state of New Jersey to be served consecutively.
0: And just like that, the empire dissolved. The lone wolf had no one to succeed him no family or friends to assume command. His workers were essentially freelancers, now on the open market. And so his reign was over, ending with the expedience with which it began.
1: But his story was not. Prosecutor Richie Roberts approached Lucas about a plea deal. Give up a few names, help the investigation, get a shorter sentence. It was as simple as that.
0: Lucas, to this day, maintains that he did not give up anyone of significance in the drug game, only dirty cops and the like.
1: However, Roberts claims to the contrary. He says, quote, his conviction and cooperation afterwards totally destroyed the heroin connection between Southeast Asia and the US. It led to over 150 major players, I'm not saying he hasn't killed an awful lot of people, but he saved an awful lot of lives by doing that." End quote.
0: The two worked closely together and eventually garnered a friendship. Lucas's sentence was reduced to five years and he was let out of prison in 1981.
1: Even though it was only a short time, the world in which Lucas was set free looked much different.
0: The efforts of the DEA and special narcotics units had proved worthwhile.
1: Lucas's counterpart, Frank Matthews, had disappeared in 1973 after the DEA was set to arrest him.
0: Ike Atkinson, Lucas's main connection to Southeast Asia, had been arrested in January of 1975, only a few days before Lucas.
1: After a cover story in the New York Times Magazine, which dubbed him Mr. Untouchable, Nikki Barnes was sentenced to life in prison in 1978.
0: Nineteen indictments were handed out as part of Frank Lucas's cooperation. Thirty more were added on during his trial, busting what the New York Times called a $50 million a year heroin empire.
1: The age of the Harlem Kingpin was over.
0: Lucas learned this the hard way when he was arrested again in 1984 for trying to sell heroin to an undercover police officer.
1: He spent seven more years in prison.
0: Lucas is still alive today. He has left behind a rather complicated legacy, tainted by the many lives he ruined by trafficking heroin.
1: However, as Roberts maintains, he saved many more through his testimonies.
0: Roberts and Lucas remain close. The former is the godfather to Lucas's son, Ray. Roberts even paid Ray's way through private school.
1: The latter is confined to a wheelchair, occasionally called upon to give interviews where he spouts stories clearly tainted by the Hollywood version of his life.
0: But even today, there is something vicious you can see in Frank Lucas. His interviews betray a dangerous thing of the past, something stern and cold and completely indifferent. The man is there. The man who, quote, didn't give a good goddamn about nothing.
1: That man continues to exist, and he is frightening.
0: Thanks again for listening to Kingpins.
1: You can find Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory.
0: Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
1: We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is a part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Drew Cole and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.